Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hello everyone and welcome to the History of England, episode 283, The Little Commonwealth. We have a few times talked about the early modern concept of the Commonwealth, the idea that England was a structured and hierarchical society, but it was one bound by mutual obligations, where all were entitled to the benefits of the Commonwealth, but in order to deserve those benefits, they must faithfully fulfil their allotted role. Last time, we talked about the community of the English parish, which might be viewed as a little commonwealth, run very much according to the same hierarchies and obligations as the kingdom. And like the kingdom, the parish had its governors and its religious and its workers. The same, then, might also be said about the household. The household was another such little commonwealth. It had its governor, and since society was both patriarchal and a gerontocracy, that governor was the male head of the household. The father was the representative almost of the monarch, and wife, servants, children all owed obedience, and obedience was required for the correct operation of the household. Now, I have to say, this is a topic that tends to confuse me, since personal relationships are not a strong point, and it's very hard not to see a household through modern eyes. Namely, that if you have a family, it's going to be messy, there's going to be a bit of argy-bargy, there's going to be a bit of give and take. That within the context of a household, all those hard and fast rules and gender roles will get seriously blurred. Now, I'm clearly wrong, and like everything, context is king. Nonetheless, the historiography of family relationships does seem to have moved on a little. So, it used to be thought that parents probably did not love their children very much in medieval and early modern England because they had such a terrible habit of dying so frequently. It used to be thought that financial concerns predominated in the choice of a marriage partner, that love was a minor consideration and might arrive by luck, but pretty little else. Historiography tended to emphasise patriarchal control over women's agency. It appears that everything is a little less binary now, a little more nuanced, and maybe that means I was a little bit right all along. Only a little bit, obviously. I think I have dispatched the one about not loving children to the boundary a few times, so let's simply note that that idea appears to be tripe and move on to mariage where it also appears that marrying for love was a clearly established and agreed requirement, or at least it was below the top ranks of society. Let us make that distinction, shall we, for all that follows. We're talking about the bulk of the population here. The Aristos are seriously weird. So, for most of us, love was important, which is, you know, nice. Although, was it really that nice? One more jaundiced view I've read is that the insistence on the primacy of a loving relationship, and for this period that really does mean a loving heterosexual relationship, the practical impact of making love being the most important objective in a society meant that it separated women from their existing female or family support network, made women move and more subject to the whim of their husband's benevolence. I can feel myself drowning, so you know, you can take it from there rather than me. Anyway, 
whether a good or bad thing, love was, however, not the be-all and end-all. Just as I mentioned when we were talking about population, economic considerations played a role, but more about when you got married rather than if you got married. However, there were, of course, rules about what was expected of each party once they got into a marriage. Church, popular conduct books, all emphasised that loving, fearing and obeying were a woman's role. Loving, providing and protecting was the male role. Playing video games until three o'clock in the morning and making rude noises in bed appeared to be, then as now, largely ungendered roles. The husband was the highest in the family and hath authority over all, and the charge of all is committed to his charge. This view appears to have been backed up pretty solidly by the law. Once a woman was married, her legal rights were seriously curtailed through the practice of coverture. She retained her title to any freehold lands of her own, such as might come with her marriage portion, but her husband had a life interest in her lands while they were married and all her movable goods and chattels became his. She couldn't make contracts on her own behalf. Her debt was due to her husband. Women were identified as the daughters, spouses or widows of particular men. Social and legal rules such as these would seem to suggest a pretty draconian regime with women very much at the receiving end. But in the words of one historian, Margaret Hunt, early modern marriages reveal the creative enactment of cultural ideals in daily life. Now this is exactly the kind of statement scholars make which causes me instant brain meltdown. But I think after a while I understand what Professor Hunt means. Things were essentially a lot messier in practice, I think is what she's saying. It's not that the cultural rules were ignored or were just for show, but in the context of real people, personalities, context, how they played out, varied a lot. So it wasn't always clear exactly where the boundaries lay. One couple argued constantly about whose job it was to boss the domestic servants, for example. And the idea that the woman was completely dependent on the goodwill of their husbands does not take into account the real nature of any given relationship. The practical reality was of mutual interdependence as wife and husband brought up a family. And for the poor, that was hard, gruelling and constant work. Society expected that most families would not succeed unless both parties pulled their weight. In the end, It might not be an equal partnership, but it was a partnership and each were expected to fulfil their role again and, interestingly, keep out of the way of the other's role. I am now going to hit you with a quote from Richard Goff, the yeoman farmer of Middle in Shropshire who occupied himself by writing a history of his neighbours. Richard was the voice of Middle in more ways than one. He's the voice of the shires. It is a rather long quote, so I'm sorry about that but there are a few things we might take from it. But anyway, let me get on with it first. Roland Muckleston had for his first wife the daughter of one Andrew Boulder of Meryton, who gave with his daughter a lease of a tenement in Meryton. She was a quiet, low-spirited woman and suffered her husband to concern himself with all things, both within doors and without, so that their housekeeping was not commendable. So I might note three things, as though we were in fact studying a gobbit for an O-level examination. I'm feeling 16 all over again. The name of Roland's wife is not mentioned once. She is a daughter and she is a wife. 
Actually, to be fair, Mr. Goff would normally use women's names, so maybe he just couldn't recall it in this instance, but tough. It makes the point nicely for me. Secondly, with pretty much every marriage, Goff talks about the woman's portion that she brought to it. Marriage might be for love, but show me the money. Thirdly, Goff is contemptuous of the tomfoolery of a man involving himself in a woman's domain. It's no less ridiculous to his mind than the other way around. To continue the story, Roland's sadly nameless wife dies. Afterwards, he married a second wife, the daughter of Mr Cuthbert Hesketh of Kenwick, commonly called Data Hesketh. It was a hasty match and a small portion, but she was a very handsome gentlewoman and of masculine spirit, and she would not suffer him to intermeddle in her concerns within doors, and she endeavoured to keep a good house. But this caused them to keep an unquiet house, and many contests happened between them which ended not without blows. I think she never boasted of the victory, for she had lost an eye in the battle. Data Hesketh was made of sterner stuff then, and Goff's approval for her stand comes across. The consequences of deviance from proper behaviour were dire and violent, is what this all means. What we have here is a man who has allowed the social rules to get out of balance. He's guilty of remembering only his duty to command and not his duty to keep to his own sphere. Because interestingly, just as it was a woman's role to obey, so it was a man's role to command. Men were expected to exercise authority over themselves and over others, demonstrating their self-discipline and restraint. Women were effectively trained to defer to their husbands from birth. Such training, of course, carries with it the unsurprising implication that such deference wasn't a natural state of affairs and needed to be constantly reinforced. But publicly, at least, it was then accepted. So much so that it sometimes gave rise to the rather extraordinary situation where women actively supported their husbands in meeting the required standards. So we see Lady Joan Barrington, just for example, writing letters on her husband's behalf since he clearly couldn't cope and she didn't want him to look like a plonker. There are, of course, plenty of examples of women behaving as though all the laws did not exist. And most women would not only carry out the duties of housewifery, which we'll describe below, but would take some sort of paid labour as well. One, Elizabeth Harvey, for example, worked as a cloth dealer, travelled on business, leaving her hubby at home to look after domestic affairs and the children. All this sounds reasonably equitable, but of course the rights lay with the man should thing go wrong. Men had a legal right to discipline their wives, just for instance, a right which lasted up to the 19th century. There was a lot of talk about what this actually meant in practice. In the 16th century, the consensus appeared to be that a man could, and I quote from Linda Pollock, physically correct his wife, but not violently. I'm not quite sure what this means, but the long and short seems to be that unacceptable abuse as a concept was very much recognised, and abuse could include isolations or confinement, as well as physical abuse. However, we go back to Richard Goff's story above. I'm pretty sure I'm reading that right, that he abused his wife so violently that she lost the sight of an eye. And there was no consequence, as far as I can see, for the husband. If everything came completely unstuck, there was recourse to the law to be had, and people did take it. And although the cards were stacked against women, they could, and they did, win cases. 
The kind of cases that came up played very much to the accepted gender roles. So men complained that women were insufficiently obedient or extravagant or neglected the children. Women complained that men didn't provide for them or denied their property to them or failed in their fatherly duties. When women petitioned the court, they would play up to their accepted roles, presenting themselves as defenceless and dependent. Obviously, going to court was relatively rare. And here I am now going through a litany of problems that might occur in marriage, which is, you know, uncomfortable. But I think the bigger point is that gender roles were important, but not hard and fast, or even perfectly understood. For couples that got a relationship wrong, or at least got the public face of their relationship wrong, there was also the hideous prospect of public humiliation for their failure at the hands of their peers. I speak of the popular ceremony, and by popular, I mean that it was visited on them by the afflicted, by your neighbours informally, not by official sanction or court of law. Just to get your attention for a moment before I go on, in case you're flagging, learning about this was one of those shoe-damaging moments when the bottom of my jaw went to ground. So, this popular punishment has many names. Charivari, Skimmington, Rough Music, Stang Riding. I could go on, and those are only the English versions, for this is a European-wide phenomenon. Basically, the idea was that people who did not abide by social rules suffered public humiliation for breaking them. And in a small community, public humiliation was a very effective form of punishment. So much so that courts could also use the same approach for other offences. Adulterers, male or female, for example, would often be made to walk in white through the streets holding a candle, exactly in the same way that What's-Her-Name in What's-It-Thrones thingy was made to do as well. Or they might be made to stand at the front of a church where everybody could see them. Anyway, a Skimmington ride was based on that principle and it was a ceremony, if that's the right word, that originated in the medieval world and was common to all Europe. And it would make it to the US of A, actually, where it was also practised, I understand. Commonly, the chosen crime deserving of humiliation was where a woman dominated her husband. The word skimmington probably came from a large wooden ladle, and the connection is that it would have been a likely instrument with which the husband might have been beaten by the disobedient wife. Now, in the skimmington, the husband didn't get off either, though, because both husband and wife were being taken to task for failing to meet their proper roles. Here is a pretty little ditty, called out in Oxfordshire, apparently, according to one Christine Bloxham. There is a man in our town who often beats his wife, so if he does it any more, we'll put his nose right out before. Holler boys, holler boys, make the bells ring. Holler boys, holler boys, God save the king. So the village or parish would get together, drag the couple or individual from their house, push them up backwards on the horse, and away they'd go through the streets. Or they might ride the stang, the stang being a long pole held by three or four sturdy lads. Things might be thrown at them along the way. Everyone would make as much noise as humanly possible, banging pots and pans, hence the name rough music. Abuse and mockery would be yelled out at them along the way. There might be a ducking in the pond at the end. In the safer versions, effigies were used instead of actual people, which sounds far preferable to me. It is a rather hideous tradition, but thoroughly fascinating, actually, in its implications. 
it rather gives the lie to the idea of a village composed of repressed villagers who would have been all merry if only yeomanry and gentry hadn't been there to force morality on them. It gives them plenty of agency in all of this. It gives the lie to the old image of the Puritan forcing reluctant villagers to behave like lemon suckers against their will. Society clearly believed these rules and that these punishments are necessary. It also demonstrates just how strong community values and mores were. This is a very close society. The practice of Skimmington continued into 18th and 19th century Europe and England and even into the 20th century. Should I suggest we revive it in my village? Send your votes on a postcard to the Shed, England, the world. I mentioned earlier then that whilst sitting within the context of patriarchal dominance and authority, marriage was clearly a partnership in which the contribution of both wife and husband were essential for success. We might look at the roles within the context of the household while accepting that any such attempt again falls foul of the contexted king rule, but you know... It's almost impossible not to generalise in life and it's impossible not to generalise in podcasting too. After all, podcasting is life and life is podcasting. One reasonably major difference with the modern idiom was that looking after the physical structure of the home was rather less effort, essentially because for most people there was so much less of it and it was so much simpler. Even a prosperous household would live in a house confined to a large hall or earth-floored open to the rafters area with a central hearth and a screened-off parlour at one end, a service area at the other and perhaps a separate kitchen in the yard. The same largely applied to merchant houses of the towns but plus cellars or storerooms. Craftsmen generally had a small workshop and a small living room and the poor inhabited tiny cottages or tenement rooms in congested alleys and yards. The standard day would be much more aligned to the season, and therefore you might be up at four o'clock in the morning, but maybe not up until seven o'clock in the morning in winter. This was partly because there was not much between you and that season. Glass in ordinary households was quite rare, and curtains even more so, unless you were one of the lucky ones who used curtains where they should be used, to go round a bedstead. I say bedstead because for many the bed was pretty much what we would call a mattress and there was a full range. Some might sleep directly on the floor, there could be a bed of straw, then all the way up to flock or even down mattresses. And then over that were laid blankets and maybe you'd have a bolster for your head. Now here is a quote from a very cross world-beating humanist thinker whose works will echo down the centuries with his erudition. Here's what he had to say when he visited England. And he wrote about English floors that are, in general, laid with white clay and are covered with rushes, occasionally renewed, but so imperfectly the bottom layer is left undisturbed, sometimes for 20 years, harbouring expectoration, vomiting, the leakage of dogs and men, ale droppings, scraps of fish and other abominations not to be fit to be mentioned. The whiner was the great Erasmus of Rotterdam. Great minds hate dirt. Now, bedsteads, as opposed to the floor, had lots of advantages, lifting you away from draughts. But with central hearths and no chimney, there was a lot of smoke around inside the house and it hung around down to a certain level. There was essentially a line under which the air was much clearer and smoke-free. So, bedsteads could have drawbacks as well, because they lifted you up towards the smoke. Still, 
bedsteads were in general highly valued, as we know from Shakespeare's will, of course, and that's partly because one of the great transforming inventions of the 16th century is the seemingly humble brick fireplace. Not so humble, I must tell you, not so humble at all. Brick had become cheaper in the 16th century, and so fireplaces were not simply the preserve anymore of the super-rich, the preserve of those who could afford stone buildings. Later in the 16th century, cheap brick and the rising income of classes yeomen and upwards would lead to W.G. Hoskins' Great Rebuilding of England, which I have already promised for a future episode. Springs on bed are some way in the future, so rope strung lengthwise and crossways across the bedstead would probably be what you laid your mattress or straw on, though you might lie on wooden planks also. Key to your comfort, therefore, was how tightly strung were these ropes, otherwise everything would go all droopy and no one wants that. And so here, ladies and gentlemen, is the origin of the phrase sleep tight, as in tight ropes. It is amazing what you find out here at the history of England. It could be crowded in the early modern house, given that a large proportion of households included domestic servants, and houses are not partitioned into sleeping areas. You're all just one big happy family in there. There's not a lot of privacy, should the evening be leading to a bit of slap and tickle. Still, sounds quite nice and warm in an animal sort of way, unless, you know. Anyway, onward. And onward would be to morning prayers. Pre-Reformation, it's probable that some of the many printed devotional texts would have been used to help a personal ceremony of religious devotion. Afterwards, the Reformers tried hard to encourage the direct relationship with God and therefore thought that free-form praying would help that, so it might be that no book was used, but helpful books did begin to appear again in Elizabethan England. Life is full of what-ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard Fixed Indemnity Insurance Plans, they supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Now, the morning wash presented something of a challenge in that it was necessary but a dangerous activity. Tudors and indeed medieval folk were every bit as concerned to be clean as you or I. Well you. But the medical advice at the time warned that disease and sickness entered the body through the pores in your skin. Obviously, nose and mouth were the primary roots, but the pores were to be guarded carefully also. So it was very important to stay away from evil smelly pools as much as possible. As we know from the disease malaria, bad air, it was believed that just the smell could kill you, seeping into your body. Conversely, perfume could have magical effects, the smell of rosemary, for example, was believed to stimulate the function of memory, directly strengthening the brain, so I could have a bit of that. Such perfumes, though, were expensive and available only to a few thousand of the rich people, but natural herbs and flowers were more widely used. Marjoram was used during the day because it, like the rose, was supposed to keep the mind lively. For those that could afford it, an apothecary could provide a scent bag to carry around and hold to your nose. Or a pomander is quite common. Now, I have met pomanders in novels and heard them mentioned in knick-knack shops into which I have unconsciously wandered or been enticed before noticing and legging it, but I've never really known what a pomander is. 
I now know that it is apparently a solid, perfumed mixture of herbs and spices which are worked into either a ball of wax or a lump of resin. I shall now try to forget this fact so that my brain does not become full. But before I do, the smelly lump might be kept in a perforated wooden or metal box and that wooden or metal box could be suspended from a cord or a girdle actually if you're wearing a skirt so that it could bash against your legs and your body like a sensor and smell happy smells as you walked. Obviously, it doesn't work with hose or trousers, so it'll get all tangled up in your legs. Herbs might be used to scent the house, and they were deeply practical as well. So natural insecticides such as tansy, rue, wormwood were strewn on the floor and mingled around with bed straws. So, given the susceptibility to disease through the skin, the morning wash should be conducted with clean, cold water, which would wash away the dirt, but not, you know, kill you at the same time. You would probably rub your teeth with a bit of linen at the same time to clean them, and all the manuals about health or manners agreed that you should comb your hair at least once a day. Washing hair, though, was unusual, but not unheard of. Every so often there might be a chance for an all-over wash. Swimming in rivers, for example, was reasonably common, but Henry VIII had most public stews or bathhouses closed down, such as those at Winchester and Chester. This was not because Henry VIII was blind to the wonders of a hot, steamy bath. It's just that the stews were known to be steamy for more than one reason. Henry, meanwhile, had himself a massive bathroom built at Hampton Court, which Elizabeth was also to enjoy. No one said Tudor society was fair, or indeed that life was fair. Remaining healthy, though, meant that clothes must indeed be kept clean, especially those close to your skin, and underwear was therefore on the front line of the struggle to avoid evil smelling, and again, smelling bad was as socially unacceptable then as it is now. Linen was therefore particularly prized for underwear on the principle that it absorbed grease and dirt and drew it away from the skin, and therefore drew it away from causing trouble. Linen was also recommended for a good, vigorous rubbing down in the morning. Thomas Eliot's book, The Castle of Health, recommended a thorough scrub with a piece of linen until the flesh do swell and be somewhat ruddy. I feel invigorated just by reading it. Clothes were, of course, expensive, and so linen was regularly changed and washed because people would often only own two or three sets of linen. The more expensive items of clothing, like their best gown or doublet, would be carefully kept for the will, and clothes are a central part of most wills. A yeoman farmer might have a bit more to give away, maybe three shirts, one on, one in the wash, one for best, which sounds great, but which also emphasises just how relatively expensive clothing was, and not just the performance gowns and things, even a canvas shirt was a major outlay. So, for the poorest, keeping clean would indeed be a major issue. It also meant that the market for second-hand clothes was very vibrant, since not everyone could afford to go to the mercer to buy cloth, and either to the tailor to have them made up, or indeed to make them up yourself. This now calls for a full and frank discussion of clothing and sumptuary laws, but I feel I lack the courage and integrity required for said discussion. I seem to remember doing one on medieval fashion. The pain lives with me still droopy sleeves and things, a layer of technical skill that is beyond me. And one of the reasons why the great sewing bee is such compelling telly, how do they make those things? Anyway, in a principle stand, I will content myself with just talking about some low-hanging fruit, like cod pieces. 
which were of course covered by sumptuary laws, which were legion. Henry VIII in 1533 had a sumptuary law. Edward VI apparently wrote his sumptuary law himself in 1552 because Edward was, as we know, a puritanical sort of chap. Elizabeth passed plenty of sumptuary laws too. If you are a nobleman, then an assertive codpiece was perfectly acceptable and even de rigueur, embroidered and thrusting. Soldiers were also much given to a mighty piece as well, and there are obvious sociological and psychological things going on here I feel I don't need to mention. Because among the poor, a big codpiece was frowned on. Interestingly, I read a piece that suggested the arrival of the codpiece coincided with the arrival of syphilis at the start of the 16th century, starting out as a mixture then in a bag hung around the knicker area to protect the crown jewels from biological warfare. Not sure I can get any more twee or euphemistic than that, to be frank. Anyway, it's an interesting theory. I'm in over my head now because I also read a summary article of some work by one Victoria Bartles, a PhD student, who argued that the codpiece did not disappear for the reasons normally thought. The normal argument for the disappearance of the codpiece has been that in the late 16th century, the codpiece fell from favour as a vogue for femininity swept through the French and English courts, with the arrival of elaborate ruffs and also ballooning breeches, which heralded a shift in focus to the face and hips. Why am I telling you all this? Are you actually interested? Anyway, Victoria Bartles tells me that the development of the Pease Cod doublet, skillfully constructed to give a rounded and tapering look to the belly, akin to the fecund shape of a pea pod ripe for picking, said Bartles. I have to say, I think I might have achieved a rounded effect to the belly without any skillful construction at all, simply through the judicious application of a pint of ale every day for 30 years. But anyway, your peas cod doublet apparently squished, therefore, the codpiece. And so the codpiece disappeared. Anyway, back from the brink. Sumptuary laws, of course, reflected the enduring obsession with social hierarchies and an innate dislike of social change. In Tudor days, then, by your cap, you could be known. And pretty much everyone wore a cap. In fact, it was the law. And by and large, if you had a bob or two, then it would be black, since black was pricey. Just a note there for the unconscious assumption that black equals Puritan, which it really doesn't. Brightly coloured caps survive and are assumed to be from the less well-off. The number of sumptuary laws in itself rather indicates just how vain was the attempt to hold back social change in the face of the arrival of capitalism and social mobility as fruitless as a narrow peas cod. Policing the sumptuary laws was almost impossible and prosecutions are vanishingly rare. The laws and customs made dress, in fact, the boon of the con artist, easily able to don the mantle of respectability with a few well-chosen clothes. It was also a feature of the sex trade, whereby wearing high-status clothing, sex workers could appeal to a certain audience. And people recognised this, actually, and they resented it. So in 1538, a complaint was taken to a London bawdy court concerning the evil example for the gorgeous apparel of the common women of the stews to the great temptation of the young maidens, wives and apprentices. Preparing food then was also an important and major activity in the household, though nothing like the complexity of the grander sort of household. 
The main meal of the day was still 10 o'clock in the morning, or more usually now back to 11 o'clock in the morning. And also, if it was summer, you'd have to have done a couple of hours' work before you had breakfast around 6am, although a bit of legislation actually in 1495 specified 5 o'clock in the morning as the start of the working day in towns. Interesting. If you did get breakfast, it is apparently in the 1550s that we first get the mention of the full English breakfast, according to Ruth Goodman, when an Andrew Board complained that workmen were having bacon and fried eggs when they should be sticking to poached eggs. Well, there you go. In the houses of the mighty, the main meal of the day was done with great ceremony, with maybe six officers laying out the room and preparing it before the family came in. An announcement was loudly made, and then the family all came in to sit and be served. Obviously, most of the staff and kit was absent from the houses of people like the yeomanry and the husbandmen, and indeed lunch tended to be a little later at noon. But there was a bit of social copying going on where possible, with boards set at the side of the room to carry the cutlery. In many such houses, of course, there would be no table. But whatever the level of ceremony, this was an important family occasion for sharing the good things in life and would be preceded by grace. Most people lived on bread or oatcakes, pottage or porridge, and white meats, which is an interesting phrase, meaning cheese, butter and eggs. There would be bacon, poultry every so often, and there would be weak ale. Only larger households tended to bake their own bread and brew their own ale. Others would now carry their prepared dough to a communal oven or simply buy the bread. Bread was at the centre of every meal, as is only true and proper. There was a great variety of bread from different grains, so wheat, rye, barley, and even pea and barley flour. The closest to modern bread or modern white bread was the manchet loaf, but even then it's very different, thicker and chewier, I'm told. Because wheat itself was very different, yeast was different, and the milling process left stuff in. For both wheat and yeast, like everything else, there would be the regional flavour or variety. Yeast was homegrown from whatever was available. There was none of your modern control and standardisation. Doesn't that sound good? All that variety. All bread, including the various types of less good quality bread, such as cheat wheat or maslin or even dredge, dredge was a mixture of oats and barley, were thick and chewy. They were also affected by the ovens in which they were cooked, which, as I mentioned, might be communal. And so I am now going to give the roots of two bits of deep law, law as deep as any of that Gandalf uncovered in the libraries of Minas Tirith. Pat-a-cake, pat-a-cake, baker's man. Do you know that nursery rhyme? Pat it and prick it. Well, that's reasonable advice for any lump of dough, I guess. But then, ha! Mark it with B. Well, why? Well, because you are in a communal oven, and so you need to know whose bit of bread is which. How good is that? Second piece of deep law, upper crust. Know that expression for posh people? Well, I have it on, honestly, slightly dodgy authority, to be fair, that this is because the lower crust of the bread would pick up the ash and stuff from Tuvan. So the upper crust was reserved for the family of the house. I commend both these bits of slightly iffy historical law to your care to do with as you will. I don't think I'm going to go into food very much because I must get on to work at some point, but let me quote a line from Ruth Goodman again. Tudor food is generally very good indeed. It's fresh and seasonal and cooked over wood or peat fires 
whose smoke is a pleasant flavour addition. There you go. Food was deeply seasonal, much more limited, so no kumquats flown from China into Waitrose on a bed of silk just in time for that all-important dinner party. But, you know, it has its compensations in flavour, regional variety and all that sort of thing. After the day's hard work, there will be some kind of final meal or supper, again, much driven by the time of year, so said supper might be 4 or 5pm, or in supper you might eat and then go back out to the harvest. Supper would be a pretty light meal, porridge, oat cakes, that sort of thing. I remember, I don't know if it's still true, that when the old folks used to come up and see me in St Andrews, the B&Bs always used to serve supper late at night, really quite late I think, just a couple of oat cakes around 11pm, could be wrong. As far as the day's work is concerned, for men, of course, it was shaped by their profession, whether farming or some kind of craft. And said profession would affect a woman's work too. But a general point is worth remaking, which is that the hard and fast lines of the modern world don't exist in the same way. There are exceptions like the professions, of course, but for most working people, there might be a main task, but lots of other things to make ends meet. So we've talked about rural crafts, especially spinning and weaving. In the town, the division between urban and rural living was a bit fuzzy. Most townspeople would have a yard of land behind the house for chickens and the odd pig, maybe. Which brings us, kicking and screaming, back to hooswifery. The meaning of the word was broad and covered a number of tasks and skills, common to most in some regards and infinitely variable and local in others. In 1523, John Fitzharbert, in his Book of Husbandry, described a workday as sweeping the house, tidying the dishboard, doing some milking, then getting the children up, preparing the meals, doing some spinning with hemp and flax, do the laundry, make hay, take corn and to and from the mill, sell butter, eggs and cheese at the market, do the family shopping, turn barley into malt and make the family's underwear. She might also help her husband with stuff like, I don't know, filling the muck wagon or driving the plough and shearing the corn. John sinks back with exhaustion after writing his book and breathes, Thou shalt have so many things to do that thou shalt not well know where it is best to begin. Of course, many jobs depended on where you lived and what you did, so the hooswif might need to have dairy and cheese-making skills, and indeed, blessed were the cheese-makers, and indeed makers of all dairy products, although they have not yet inherited the earth. In towns, it might be craft work, and I could not find a way to write that and still get in the mention of a German techno-pop band. Sorry about that. A fundamental failure of creativity. But yes, women might be every bit as involved in crafts as men, and they would need financial skills too. They tended to keep the books, usually being the one that went to market to sell any surplus. All of this emphasises the point where I think we came in. The while there's no doubt this is a patriarchal society... For pretty much all families to survive and thrive required family partnership. Right, I am of course terribly conscious of both all that I have said and more importantly that which I have left unsaid. It is a bottomless lake to try and describe every aspect of different jobs and industries, so I appreciate this is but a flavour, a bit of crust, as it were. Next time, we'll continue on our journey of early and mid-Tudor society. I think we should now start looking up a bit more and talk about the rhythm of the year, the ritual year of late medieval days and how that was changed by the Reformation into mid-century. That will once more be next week now that the tempo of the history of England is being upped again. So thank you for listening everyone, good luck and have a great week.